Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Twelve Ordinary Men. One of the reasons the study of history is essential is that it teaches us humility. You see, none of us are self-made men or women. We all stand on the shoulders of heroes. Yeah, villains and heroes that have gone before us. And that's true in so many areas. You know, we get up in the morning, we turn on the electric lights. I mean, you think of how we take that for granted, that little act that's possible only because brilliant people who came before us not only thought of how to harness electricity, but also how to convert that into a stable power source that will provide light. And those inventions were improved by others who also lent their intellectual horsepower to make this a reliable energy source. Well, I could go on and on about how every modern person's daily life has been shaped by those who went before us. And it's fascinating to become aware of these things. Now, that's true when it comes to technology, which has impacted us, but it's also true of the thoughts we have, which many of us think are simply our own. Look, scientists and philosophers and educators have both trained us as to what to pay attention to, but also what we are to value and what we are to reject. In some cases, this has been helpful and brilliant, but in other cases, it has eroded the foundations of our society and of our individual lives. And a little thought tells us all that's true. But there's something else. If you're a Christian, your faith is handed down to you. And might I add, even if you're not a Christian, you've also benefited. Everything from the drive to universal literacy, to medical care for the masses, to forms of government that are led by laws and not mass prejudice, all of that is a heritage of the Christian faith. Now, thinking about that, you might have heard me express my displeasure at red-letter Bibles. I don't object when the words of Jesus are in red, but I do object when there are those who call themselves red-letter Christians in that they feel that the words of Jesus are important and the others are not. You see, truth be told, we don't have one word in the Bible that was actually written by Jesus. What we have is this, the deeds of Jesus, his words, the significance of what his life means, that has all been translated to us through others. Jesus' words as we read them in the Bible are those words that others recorded told us about. Not just that, but our eyes are directed to what the Jesus event actually meant. I mean, consider John 21, 25. It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that's precisely the point. The things the Bible teaches about the events of Jesus, those were selected by others. That is, it is they who made a decision as to what to include and what to exclude. So since that's true, unmistakably true, that our faith rests on what others said about Jesus, and since we've been shaped by those other men, what do we know about them? You know, Jesus himself was acutely aware of this problem. He knew at the outset that he would finish the plan that the Father had given him. He would die in Jerusalem. He would rise from the dead. He would spend the next 40 days with his disciples. And then he would ascend to heaven, giving others the task of explaining his life and bringing the gospel to the whole world. So I hope you can see, as I you know, explain it that way, 
how fraught this is with problems. The choice of who would be the one who would explain Jesus to us, that was a major choice. Now, we're studying the book of Luke, and we've come to that section in which Jesus chooses those men. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Our passage begins with the words, in those days. This is Luke's way of signaling chronology. But we who read this are prone to ask, you know, in which days? Well, the answer must be in the days when Jesus was teaching in Galilee, in the days when the Pharisees were ramping up their opposition to him so that wherever he would go, they stood ready to accuse him and to attempt to discredit him before the crowds. In those days, days of great popularity and days of growing opposition, in those days of his Galilean ministry. Now, up to this point, Luke has already told us, and we read this back in the beginning of chapter 5, that Jesus has already called Peter, as well as James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee. We've also read about Jesus passing by Matthew, or Levi's, tax booth, and calling Levi to leave his prosperous life, abandon everything, and follow him. But at that time, the calling was not yet formalized. This is what's happening now. I want you to notice, and it's found in verse 13, that among those who followed Jesus, he chose 12 and he named them apostles. Think about that. They were not just disciples. Now, to be a disciple, that was a considerable privilege. During the time of Jesus, all the well-known rabbis of his day had disciples. Would-be disciples would apply to a rabbi for the privilege of studying under them And they would not only memorize the teachings of their rabbi, they would live according to them. The disciples would memorize the mannerisms of their teacher. They would be everywhere their teacher would go. They would listen as their teacher taught. And they would also ask questions, and their teacher would ask them questions. There was no time when they were with their teacher when they were not being trained. Everything about the life of the teacher was training. So that included training in the facts, but also training in attitudes, in outlook, in reaction to things. That was all considered education. Now, Jesus was about to choose 12 among his disciples, and he was going to make these disciples his apostles. Now, apostles, that's another term. It's a technical term. It means someone who is sent. But that might not yet make the kind of impact on us as it should. See, we might say that an apostle is a commissioned representative. That is, Jesus was going to choose men who, when they showed up, would be representing him. Now, please don't spiritualize that too quickly, as if to say, well, you know, I mean, we all represent Jesus in our lives. Of course, that's true. At least it's supposed to be true. But there's something else that's intended here. These men were to become authorities on Jesus. And later, as the gospel was brought to the world, you know, as false teachers and aberrant teaching about Jesus found its way into the Christian camp, it was these men, these apostles, they were to be a backstop. They were to be the final definitive authority on everything that is Jesus. Step back for a moment. You know, it is true that in the New Testament, there are others that are also called apostles. 
Barnabas, Epaphrodites, Apollos, Silas, Timothy, all these at times are either called that or might be called that depending on how you actually interpret a given passage. But these other people, they're apostles of a local church. That is, they are sent out by a church or they might be sent out by Paul or something like that. But the 12 are different from all of them. The 12 are the only men who were directly trained by Jesus. Later, the risen Jesus would also directly train Paul. And Paul, because of the uniqueness of his training, would call himself one untimely born. But that matter put aside, these 12 apostles, they're the only 12 men who are directly trained by Jesus in his earthly ministry with the express purpose that in the days to come, they would be the only reliable source on the ministry of Jesus. These men weren't to give their best guess on what Jesus might say. They were to give a definitive answer. And Jesus explained that in detail in John 14, 25 to 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That is, Jesus trained these 12 men exceptionally well, but then the Holy Spirit would come and supernaturally remind the 12 of them so that they could repeat the words of Jesus accurately, the deeds of Jesus, as well as the implications of everything that Jesus did without error, without mixing things up, but truthfully, accurately, objectively, and definitively. That's what Jesus was up to here. And so realizing how important this was, Luke tells us that he went to the mountain, although he doesn't tell us which mountain, but he went to the mountain and prayed all night. The choice of which 12 he was to choose was the most important decision in the history of the world. I mean, you think about it. From the beginning of human history, immediately after the fall of Adam, God had given a promise that he would send a deliverer. But what if the Deliverer had come and released us from the power of sin, but nobody heard about it? So much depended on who Jesus would pick for the most important task any people have ever had. And so on the night before his important choice, Jesus didn't sleep. He was praying. Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, God will accomplish His purposes. He chooses to employ His faithful people as His hands. As we begin a new year, May I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry? Or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store for His kingdom. To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Jesus picked 12 men. So why 12? 
You know, a great many answers have been suggested. I think the best answer is that 12 corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a foreshadowing that there will be a new Israel made up of Jews and Gentiles, chosen people of God from every race and tribe and language and tongue. I notice also that in the book of Revelation, where the new Jerusalem is being described, Revelation 21 verse 14 tells us, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 are the foundation of everything upon which the gospel is built. And Jesus is well aware of this. He's praying the night before he announces his decision. No doubt he's seeking wisdom from the Father. The eternal plan of God will be on the shoulders of the men he chooses in the morning. I think it's worth our while to review Jesus' selection. But before we look at each individual name, we should do well also to notice, which many others have noticed as well before me, is that these 12 men are notable in how ordinary they are. See, Jesus didn't go to the finest educational institutions in the world and select the most able and brilliant men in human history. Indeed, Luke in the book of Acts will notice this very thing. He's describing the clash between Peter and John and the members of the Sanhedrin, which is the elite Jewish ruling council. Acts 14 verse 13 says, Now when they, that is the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. That is, what these men were to become was a reflection of the one who taught them and not a reflection on their unique abilities. The 12 apostles that brought the gospel to the world were 12 men who are noted for how ordinary they were. What they became is the story of grace. It's also the story of what Paul would reflect on in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's what's happened here. Jesus chose ordinary men so that from that time on, We would never think that the gospel came to us through the clever calculation of exceptional men. It did not. It came through ordinary men. Let's consider them one at a time. The first one, Simon. Luke adds that it was Jesus who named him Peter. We know that by trade, Peter was a fisherman. His new name, which John tells us in his gospel, Jesus actually named Peter when he actually met him. And Peter means rock. If the name means anything, it means one who is the model of steadiness, one who can't be moved, the one who constantly holds fast. You know, at first we would think that Peter's anything but a rock. He seems at first to be the opposite. I mean, after all, when Jesus told the 12 about his suffering, it was Peter who rebuked Jesus and told him it would never happen. And when Jesus was going to wash his disciples' feet in the upper room, it was Peter who drew back and said, you'll never wash my feet. And when Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me, at that moment, Peter says, then wash my hands and and my head as well. He doesn't know what he's saying, but he wants to say something. And of course, we all remember that it was the same Peter who told Jesus that even though the others would desert him, when it came to his arrest, Peter said, I'll stand by you. We also remember Peter's bitter denial of Jesus when the pressure was on. At first, it seems he's been misnamed. But we also remember that after Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus reinstated Peter, 
telling him that his calling was to feed a sheep. And that Peter does. He's the one who preaches the first ever Christian sermon that wins 3,000 to faith in Christ. He's the one who takes leadership in the early church. He's the one who is known for his boldness and his clear leadership at the later Council of Jerusalem when the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. He really did become the rock, the leader of the apostolic band. Now, the second person is his brother, Andrew. He's also a fisherman. You know, it was Andrew who originally brought Peter to Jesus. And it was Andrew who brought that boy to Jesus, you know, the boy who had the five barley loaves and the two fish, that little meal that Jesus multiplied to feed the 5,000. You know, somehow Andrew must have believed that Jesus was able to do something with little. And later when some Greeks wanted to see Jesus and they had approached Philip, Philip went to Andrew to know what to do. And together, Andrew and Philip brought those men to Jesus. Well, the third person is James. He's the son of Zebedee, the man with a fishing business with his sons. You know, we could say a number of things about James, including the fact that he, along with his brother John, they were called the sons of thunder, which had something to do, I think, with their fiery natures. But we also remember that this James would become the first of the 12 to wear a martyr's crown. Acts 12 verse 2 says that it was Herod who killed this James with a sword. The fourth is James' brother, John. And if James was to be the first of the 12 to die, John would be the last. He was no doubt the youngest of the 12. And yet he, along with Peter, was the one who provided primary leadership to the early church. John was the one who was left in front of the cross when everyone else had fled. And John was the one who cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was John who wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote three inspired letters, as well as the last book of our Bible, which is the book of Revelation. The fifth choice is Philip. He's from Bethsaida, as were Andrew and Peter. Philip must have seen something in Jesus very quickly because John 1 verse 45 records that he was the one who first found Nathanael and said, we found the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. He meant Jesus. But he's also the one when Jesus was with the 5,000 who had said that no one could feed this many. No, he wasn't perfect either. And sixth, there was this man named Bartholomew in John's gospel. He's called Nathaniel. Jesus had said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom is nothing false. Seventh, we have Matthew, the man who would later become the author of the book of Matthew. He had been a tax collector you know, one who, unlike Nathaniel, he wasn't a true Israelite in whom was nothing false. Instead, he was a betrayer of the people of Israel until Jesus changed his life. Eighth, we have Thomas, and we remember him most because, you know, he was the last of the apostolic group to have seen Jesus after he was raised. Many have called him Doubting Thomas, but perhaps we should also remember that he was the very first in the apostolic band to say of Jesus, he is my Lord and my God. He was the one that grasped that reality first. Ninth is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also been called James the Younger. His mother was called Mary, and she was one of the women that followed Jesus. Apparently, it was a family affair. And tenth is Simon, and here Luke adds that he was called the Zealot. Again, unlike Nathaniel, this was not an Israelite in whom was nothing false. The zealots, well, depending on which side you were on, but the Romans saw them as terrorists. These were dagger men. They looked to strike Romans and kill them and run away. And by the way, on this note, you can imagine this group of 12 men. I mean, one's Matthew. He's a tax collector. He willingly sold out to the Romans for money. And on the other hand, there's Simon, who would kill the Romans even if it cost him his own life. 
But there they were, Matthew and Simon, two men who couldn't have been more opposite in their political views. I mean, how did they get along? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us about their relationship, but of this we can be sure. Those two men must have found in Jesus something that was far greater than their previous politics. This is the story of the miracle of Christ's influence on their lives. Well, 11th is Judas, the son of James. Matthew calls him Thaddeus. John says that at one time he had wanted Jesus to show himself to the world rather than to pursue the course that Jesus was taking. Yep, he wasn't perfect either. And finally, there's this strange addition of the 12th man, Judas Iscariot. And Luke is quick to add, the one who became a traitor. You know, the question is often asked, I mean, why would Jesus have chosen Judas Iscariot? Well, I'm going to say it wasn't a mistake. In John 6, verse 70, Jesus said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He knew that Judas was driven by greed, that he regularly stole out of the offering devoted to Jesus' ministry. He was the one who criticized when Mary Magdalene broke the jar of expensive nard and poured it out onto Jesus. So why pick him? Well, Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up to the Jewish religious leaders according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Even though Judas made his decision freely, he was chosen to betray Jesus. Later, Peter would say, may his place be deserted and may another take his place of leadership. Well, 12 ordinary men who brought the gospel to the world. Thomas took it to as far as India. Philip to North Africa, Matthew to Persia or Iran. And each man died for Christ, 12 men who changed the world. Ordinary men indeed. John, thanks so much for your message. Uh, Help me out with just a definition today. What does it mean for Christians to hold to the apostolic faith? Well, essentially it means that the Bible is for us the one rule that supersedes everything. If it's in the Bible, we are required to obey and believe. If it's not in the Bible, it's a matter of our free choice. And it's important to say it just simply like that. The Bible is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. And where something falls out of that, we don't. And where it is in that, we always bend the knee. That's what it means to be apostolic in a very practical sense. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every Bible truth should be known. Every Bible truth should be lived. And frankly, It's easier to know what God says than it is to live it well. That's a gap Back to the Bible Canada wants to address in our new blog format. Starting 2024, Dr. John Newfeld and other trusted Christian leaders will provide a Bible-focused and practically-oriented resource to bridge the gap between faith and life. This resource will focus on the how-to in matters like shaping a consistent prayer life, wrestling with temptation, and navigating the advance of years. Each theme will reflect not only what the Bible says, but how our theology can be translated into our experience. While you can check out each new issue at backtothebible.ca, 
and be sure to subscribe to receive each new article as it's available sent directly to your inbox.